Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Tanea Tauber, the Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. This is the final episode in a three-part series exploring the evolution of judicial independence in America and its critical role in our democracy from the founding to present day. Part three features two federal judges discussing their experiences upholding judicial independence in the face of contemporary challenges. Clara Altman, Deputy Director of the Federal Judicial Center, moderates the conversation with Judge Guy Cole Jr. of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit and Judge Sarah Lee Ellis of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois. The series is presented in partnership with the Federal Judicial Center and was hosted live at the National Constitution Center on May 15, 2023. Here's Clara to get the conversation started. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining us for our program on the evolution of judicial independence. I'm Clara Altman. I'm the deputy director at the Federal Judicial Center Um, The Federal Judicial Center is the research and education agency for the federal courts, and we are really pleased to partner with the National Constitution Center on this program. Um, We're really thankful to Jeff Rosen, to the staff at the NCC, and to all of you in the audience for joining us. We just finished two panels this morning with historians and legal scholars talking about the history of judicial independence and its evolution, bringing us up to today. So it's fitting, we think, to round out that discussion with our two panelists, two federal judges, to talk about their perspectives on judicial independence. And I think where I want to start is uh, with some definitions, uh, to start with how you understand judicial independence and what it means to you. Um, And I'll start with you, Judge Ellis. Uh, Well, I think judicial independence um, is... What it means to me is that we are able to make the decisions that we believe are correct in line with the law um, and that we don't worry about our jobs. We don't worry about our safety or our security. Um, We don't worry about what Congress or the president thinks, but that we get to the right decision and that we are accountable to the people. And we are responsible to the people, um, and we are protected and supported by the people. Judge Cole? Well, I'd like to thank the center for having us. Uh, My definition is pretty much the same. Um, I see uh, judicial independence as the freedom uh, for courts, trial and appellate courts, Supreme Court as well, to be able to decide a matter based upon the merits without any concern for legislative or executive um, interference or involvement or from any external source. So in my mind, we have uh, a system in, uh, in this country where we really don't have to worry about contact from outside sources. We don't worry really as much about threats uh, from uh, changes in in government, uh, changes 
that might you know impact uh, the the overall administration of of, of our courts. Uh, you know, you look at some countries where uh, when there's a change in government, you know, the military comes in and uh, political officials and and judges are marched out of their offices. You know, we don't have to worry about that. I mean, we uh, have norms and conventions in this uh, this country where. Uh, that's really not uh, a concern. And, you know, we certainly are challenged uh, at this point in our history uh, to try to protect those norms and those uh, conventions. But at this point, we really are able to make decisions as judges based upon the merits uh, of, of cases, based upon the record that is made, by bankruptcy judges, magistrate judges, district judges, and in, in their cases, at the Court of Appeals, uh, the record comes to us, uh, and based upon that record that uh, uh, is before us, then we can uh, make a decision about how the case should be resolved. So uh, we've been talking this morning about uh, a lot of the norms in the courts. We've been talking about some of the, the history of the politics and constitutional law. Um, a lot of matters that those of us uh, who are either steeped in thinking about this stuff or who are judges think about all the time. Um, but I wonder about um, people who are not judges, people who are not steeped in thinking about this all the time in the way I think many in this room are. Um, how would you explain judicial independence to them and what they might expect or how might you hope they understand it? And that may be some of what you've already said. It may be something else. Um, Judge Ellis? Well, I think that the importance of civics goes a long way to making the public understand what we do and how important it is that we are independent and free to make the decisions that we think are correct on the merits. So. Every time that uh, I see students come into the courthouse, I'm really excited to see them or when judges go out into the community. But that it's important that people understand that the courthouse is their, that's their house. And that's where they should come in. Uh, we used to have um, court watchers when I was a young lawyer and it was a group of people that were retired. They would come in, they would watch trials. And then as I would be coming out, they would pull me aside and say, hey kid, you know, that cross, I don't think that went over so well. <laughs> but they would come in and they would sit in the cafeteria and have coffee and talk about the cases and talk about the judges but more importantly, would go back out into the community and be our advocates and talk about how judges decided cases and that things ran smoothly and that things were fair. And that, I think, is so important. And I understand these days that it is harder and harder and harder to get into courthouses. And in some ways, it should be because for judges to be independent and feel like we can make the decisions we need to make, we need to be safe and we need to feel safe. 
And we have to walk that line between security and safety and keeping the courthouses open so that people can see what we do. Because if they don't see what we do, they won't understand what we do. And they won't understand how nonpartisan we are. That we are not trying to get to the right result um, because it will please the president or will please the senator that put our name forward. It's, we wanna get to the right, right result because it's the right result. And the more that they can, the public can see that we do follow norms, that we don't decide cases solely on a particular whim, but that there is a process and that the process is consistent. No matter what judge, no matter whether it's a district court judge, a magistrate judge, a bankruptcy judge, a judge sitting on the Court of Appeals, there is a consistent process. And you can bank on that process. So the more that um, we have the public understand what we do, the more that they are invested in and understand how fragile judicial independence is and will stand up for us when it's threatened. Cool. Yeah, I think it's important to, you know, focus initially on just the three branches and how different they are. So if you look at the executive branch, uh, you're looking at millions of employees uh, who are, uh, you know, federal government uh, uh, employees uh, who work in different uh, agencies, uh, different uh, uh, sectors of, of, the, of the federal government. Uh, you look at the, you've got the cabinet, you've got all of these, you know, various officials. And we expect for the executive to have policies that they're advancing. We expect uh, the executive to run the government on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. Uh, and we expect the government to be uh, uh, the executive to be visible uh, in terms of advancing uh, its agenda, its policies. You look at the legislative branch, of course, their job is to enact laws. Uh, they also have policies that they're advancing. Uh, and we see these daily. So, you know, a good example, uh, I think, you know, just in front of us today is the debt ceiling uh, crisis. So what we're seeing right in front of us right now is the executive and the legislative branches are negotiating, trying to find some sort of agreement uh, where this very important issue can be resolved. Uh, reported in the news daily, um, and we hear you know, of movement one way or the other in terms of the policies and positions of these two branches. Notably absent, of course, is the judiciary. You know, we are uh, uh, more reactive. There's no role for us to play right now in terms of this debt ceiling um, crisis. And there won't be unless and until some sort of action is filed in our, you know, one of our courts. And I would, what I would tell the public is that we are not, uh, uh, designed to advance policies in that regard. Uh, we uh, 
uh, are, are really more of a, of a silent partner, though critical partner in the whole process. And we become uh, more involved, obviously, once some sort of an action is brought um, to the courts. At that point, our role is to decide cases based upon a record that is made before us. Um, we, we don't worry about what president appointed us, or we certainly should not. Uh, um, we do not, uh, uh, our decisions are not guided by uh, the, 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 the party uh, of which we were before we uh, became judges. Uh, we are, um, uh, we review matters based upon the Constitution, based upon the law, uh, and based upon you know, the record that gets made either at the trial court level uh, or that's before the appellate court. So that's what I would tell uh, the, the public. You know, our role is just very different from these other two branches, which are very visible in terms of advancing uh, their policies uh, and their perspectives. And I, and I guess just to follow up on that, I think um, that it's important for the public to understand that we play the long game and that we look at um, issues that come before us in the context of history and in the context of how issues have come before us before and how we may expect them to come before us in the future. Um, whereas, you know, the executive branch or Congress or state uh, legislators are of the moment. And so they may not, as you're drafting a piece of legislation, be thinking about how does this interact with other pieces of legislation? How does this interact with other decisions that have come before? Sometimes it is in uh, the legislator's mind about this interaction and they will draft things very specifically, but a lot of times they don't. And it's, you know, kind of like making sausage. You know, you throw a bunch of things in there and you see what comes out. But it, as judges, it's our job to look at particular issues in the context of everything that has come before. And um, I think that it creates a lot of stability in government where people can rely on precedents. Um, people understand what their rights are, that they believe that once it's established, they're not going to disappear. Um, and, and that is our role in terms of judicial independence. That was really a helpful foundation because I think you, know, you laid out a couple of aspects to independence, and I think we'll get, in, get into each of them. You talked about decisional independence, um, you know, making decisions in cases free from improper influence. You talked about the independence of the judiciary as a branch um, within our government, what its role is. And on the last point, Judge Ellis, I hear you talking a little bit about the logic of the law um, and the way that that promotes independence and the culture of the law. So I wanna start with this issue of your decisional independence. You know, Mary Builder referred to this as this thing called judging and the emergence of this thing called judging. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about when you are doing that um, as judges, 
Um, what are some of the constraints, the norms, the procedures, the practices that help you ensure your independence, that are part of you staying independent? And I'll start with you this time, Judge Cole. So I'll use an example that's you know, in the news now, and so the, uh, the asylum issue, the, 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 the border crisis. Um, so, you know, the public, you know, understandably thinks about uh, the immigration issues in a, in a very broad sense. What policies should our court, I mean, our country have in terms of uh, 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 people from outside this country entering uh, and obtaining some sort of review of uh, their, their status in, in the event they're seeking asylum or some other uh, protection in this, in this country. Uh, for the courts, we review those matters on a case-by-case -case basis. So, yeah, there are all these overarching policies, but the courts make decisions based upon records that come before us. So in the immigration context, those records are made by an immigration judge and a board of immigration appeals, and they come, for example, to the Court of Appeals with that record before us. So to the extent uh, a petitioner, as we call them, uh, is making a claim that he or she should uh, not have to return to their country of origin based upon some sort of uh, uh, status uh, uh, threat persecution or something of that nature. Uh, we as, as courts are not looking, you know, really as much at the, as, at the overarching policy as we're looking at what record ha have the parties, the government and the petitioning parties made before us and we make our decision based upon that. Which leads me to the next point, uh, and that's that, you know, courts are governed, you know, by precedent. So, uh, you know, we're not reaching decisions, you know, from whole cloth. You know, we have a long body, uh, usually, not always, uh, of law that gives us guidance in terms of how uh, other courts have decided the matter, matter, how district courts within our districts, how uh, circuit courts within our circuits, and of course the Supreme Court. And so we have that precedent uh, as a guidance, and we're bound, obviously, to follow uh, precedent to a certain extent. Um, the other thing that uh, I think is a, is a guide, I'll just say for the appellate courts, uh, and this has been referenced earlier, uh, you know, the appellate judges sit in panels of three uh, ordinarily, and having uh, two other judges uh, who hear the matter uh, uh, along with you, and then uh, are in a conference following uh, oral argument, if the matter is argued, uh, to discuss the matter is of great benefit because uh, it gives, uh, certainly me as a judge, a chance to hear how two other judges have you know, reviewed the record, how, how they've assessed oral, oral argument, and how they're looking at the case uh, that uh, is before us. You know, we also have, uh, to the extent uh, the panel has decided a matter in a way uh, that maybe is a little bit uh, off the rails or somebody views it as being erroneous, there's a, a process for a panel rehearing. 
there's also a process been referred to earlier uh, for en banc review. Uh, and in larger circuits, you're looking at an en banc court of 14, 15, 16 judges. Uh, and, you know, that is a, you know, a bit of a self-regulating uh, uh, aspect of being uh, in the appellate courts uh, because I, th I think any judge is at least somewhat mindful of, you know, is this a matter that, you know, might prompt the en banc court to review this? And it's a, it's a good thing. I mean, it's good to have uh, uh, the full court there to deal with matters of great importance, uh, of exceptional importance uh, to the extent uh, the en banc court has a different take from the uh, um, from the three-judge panel. And then, of course, you've got the Supreme Court, which can decide to you know, grant review of a matter that, that they're requested to take. Judge Ellis, what about on the district court? Well, we have the Court of Appeals, and uh, that is a, a very significant constraint on people going off the rails. And I think it has more to do with... Um, people's humanity and sense of self uh, in that nobody wants to be told that you're wrong. <laughs> and nobody wants to be publicly shamed and said, you're an idiot and, you know, you can't read. So <laughs> that, I think that that actually goes a long way um, when we were talking about norms, that it does keep people in check. Because for the most part, most people don't want that public shaming. And most people care. Um, and, you know, I don't want and I don't seek to be reversed by the Seventh Circuit when I issue um, the decisions that I issue. I'm okay with being reversed if I believe that, you know, there are, not everything is black and white. And if there are ways that the Seventh Circuit could say, this is how it should come out. And I could legitimately say, no, I think it's this other way. You know, if it's um, two equally valid outcomes, I choose one, they choose the other one. There is no shame in being reversed. Um, but where you go completely off the rails, there's a lot of shame in that, and there should be. So um, I think that that is a, an institutional way of kind of keeping uh, individual decision-making in check. So there's this culture of the law um, and remaining within the bounds of the law and following precedent and uh, not getting overruled and not getting told you're an idiot by your colleagues <laughs> that helps to ensure judicial independence. There's this other aspect of it that came up on the earlier panels. I think uh, Marin Levy referred to it as the, the family of in-laws, but the, you know, sort of coming into the court, the culture, the collegiality, um, and I was wondering if you could each talk a little bit about your experience with that, about how the community of the court and your colleagues shapes uh, your sense of independence, reinforces or bolsters those norms. Um, I'll start with you, Judge Ellis. 
And I, I think it's true. It is a family, and that when you um, join the court, that you are joining a family. And I know that across the country, levels of collegiality can vary from court to court and circuit to circuit. But um, I can say in Chicago, in the Northern District, when somebody comes on, that it's almost a welcoming committee. And people go out of their way to um, share things as mundane as, here are the spreadsheets I use to keep everything on track so that we don't, cases don't fall through the cracks. To every Wednesday morning, we have coffee together. And when you do that over time, you get to see that it really doesn't matter who appointed you, that people have families and dogs and go on vacation and ask for restaurant recommendations. And you get to know people as other people. And what that does is creates, particularly on the district court, when you are deciding things in isolation, that it's um, a space where it is open and safe to ask questions. That you are not meant to, nor should you believe, that you have all the answers. And that things are difficult and hard. And so it might make sense to, you know, over coffee on Wednesday say, I'm struggling with this. And what do you think? And that you can then talk it through and get other perspectives. The nice thing about being on the appellate court is that you have to convince two other people <laughs> to agree with you that, that what uh, the result that you believe is the right result actually is the right result. And not only that it is the right result, but the way you got there is the right way to get there. And as a district court judge, it's important to be able to have those kinds of conversations with your colleagues. But you will only do that if there's trust, if uh, there's mutual respect. And so I think that these things of collegiality are so important to build that. Judge Cole. Yeah, uh, I agree completely. Uh, the prior panel you know, made several you know, really good points on, on this. Um, the D.C. Circuit certainly focused under Judge uh, Edwards on improving collegiality. And, and uh, I think across the circuits, there's been, um, you know, a, a renewed focus on, on doing that. Uh, with the D.C. Circuit, you have all of the judges in one location. Uh, the challenge for many of the other circuits is that judges are uh, resident in multiple states, and there is usually, you know, a, a home court where uh, most of the arguments are held. Though some circuits uh, do travel, but the challenge is that the judges don't see one another each and every day. You can go weeks or months, uh, four, five, six months and not sit with another judge, or maybe even see that judge. So it's important to do whatever uh, can be done to enhance the opportunities for those judges to 
uh, interact, as uh, Judge Ellis said, get to know one another on both a professional level and a personal level. I mean, I agree with Judge Edwards in his uh, article from a number of years ago. Uh, yeah, it's great to be collegial uh, because you want to work well with people and hopefully enjoy their company. But collegiality also promotes an openness for discussion and, again, hopefully respect for one another's positions. So uh, I'll just use the Sixth Circuit as an example, but we're, we're not uh, the only circuit who have done this. Uh, we have uh, made collegiality a priority. Uh, and so uh, to such end, we've tried to um, uh, develop opportunities for when we're in our home location in Cincinnati to get together. So there's a summer a boat ride with uh, you know, judges and, and law clerks. That gives us a chance to get together socially. We try to have lunch. Uh, most recently, judges and their law clerks. Uh, and that way you have a chance for you know, three judges to get together and law clerks uh, from those chambers. Uh, we have uh, a dinner uh, during the you know, holiday season. We try to sit together as a full court three or four times a year now so that we're all in Cincinnati uh, at the same time. I think there's just a real benefit uh, if, if uh, the judges can uh, really just spend time, get to know one another, maybe get to know one another's families uh, to some extent. It just promotes uh, you know, more productive discussions, more open discussions, and I think at the end of the day, uh, better decision making. That's, uh, Judge Colt, such a good point about collegiality, that it's not just about all getting along, but it's actually about you know, fostering an environment that's open to ideas. Because you know, one of the things that came up in some of the earlier panels um, is the reality of increasing polarization um, and the impact of that increasing polarization on the nomination and confirmation process for judges. And, you know, uh, you know, the public sees that. It's, you know, very aware of it. We all are. Um, and that, sh that sort of structures the whole way that judges come to the bench. And, um, and, and so what do, what do you say to people looking at that uh, and saying, like, look at this. I mean, there's just such increasing polarization. And what do you say about how that, you know, how the culture of the judiciary or the culture of your courts um, helps ensure a kind of robust independence? Well, I, you know, I think that, uh, as others have said, you know, we're, we're living in a very polarized society. I mean, that's just the reality. Um, and, um, you know, I can't estimate or predict now uh, when we will be less polarized. If anything, we seem to be going you know, in the direction of becoming even more polarized, if that's, if that's possible. So uh, I get that question from, you know, friends and, and family and um, just members of the public, you know, what is it like to work uh, on a court, especially a, an appellate court, multi-judge court, where you have judges who are, you know, nominated by different presidents of various, you know, stripes, um, who uh, these days go through a, uh, a very difficult and challenging uh, nomination and confirmation process, you know, how do you find a way to work uh, together? 
And you just, it's, it's like anything, you have to, have to work at it. Um, with, in our court, when new judges come on, you know, we do things to try to welcome them um, and to make their um, uh, move to the courts uh, smoother. We have a, a mentor judge who uh, will help that judge make the transition, you know, from their prior work to uh, work on the court. Um, and, 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 you know, I think we just, we just do our best to follow, you know, uh, the rule of law and to be faithful to the rule of law. Yeah, do we have different tools in our toolkit, so to speak? I've heard that expression before in terms of how we decide cases and where we end up uh, in terms of the resolution. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. But um, I guess my, you know, my view is that the judges are trying very hard to um, follow the precedent, uh, whether it's from the Supreme Court, uh, Circuit Court, uh, to abide by constitutional principles, uh, and to make the po you know, best possible decision they can make. It's, these are challenging times, though. And you know, as a member of the public, if I step back and, and, and look at the courts, um, I, I would be concerned, um, uh, especially over the last three, four, five, six years. Um, and I just think we have to keep working at it. Um, uh, some of the things we do, uh, again, across the circuits to try to, you know, help with this um, is uh, address the issues that are of real concern to the public. You know, workplace conduct, there has been a real focus the last uh, several years, uh, thanks to the Chief Justice and others, uh, for the courts to focus on um, problems that arose within the courts that can get exacerbated because of, you know, differences uh, that the judges and others have about um, uh, issues. And so, you know, we're addressing uh, those kind of issues. And most courts have a directive workplace relations. Uh, we're also focusing on things like wellness. Um, and to the extent there are issues that divide courts or cause problems uh, that seem to be related to um, some sort of you know, disagreement and misunderstanding, sometimes those are issues that are based upon um, you know, health reasons uh, uh, or reasons related to health. And so there are avenues which judges can access at this point uh, to get assistance. And then, of course, you know, there uh, uh, are provisions to deal with judges' conduct and disability. And, uh, you know, I think the courts are being very mindful to ensure uh, that those sort of issues are addressed. At the end of the day, you know, we, we have to continue to earn the public's trust. And we can only do that uh, by ensuring uh, that we uh, are uh, governing ourselves in a manner that uh, is appropriate, uh, 
uh, and that we're, you know, again, just doing the best we can to, to follow the law. Judge Ellis? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it is incumbent on judges to keep our own houses in order, or our own house in order, um, and to be proactive about it and not wait for decision issues to come to us, but that, um, you know, we're not waiting for the next Wall Street Journal article to be published, but that we are um, taking an active role in looking at ourselves, looking at issues that bubble up, and then dealing with them in a very timely and proactive basis. Um, I think, though, that we can also look to uh, the other branches of government for assistance, too. Um, how do we select judges? So that the more that we can rely on merit selection panels, that that will give the public trust that people are not being chosen on a partisan or ideological basis, but instead that by the time a list of finalists gets to a particular senator or two senators, that they have been vetted through a nonpartisan committee who is looking at people's experience, who uh, that committee, when they are looking at particular applicants that they focus on a diversity of applicants, right? So that you are looking at um, people that aren't just coming from big firms or aren't just coming from uh, the US Attorney's Office, but are coming from a variety of experiences, a variety of backgrounds, and then the senator commits, here's the slate, we'll put someone from this slate before the president for a nomination. I think that will um, engender trust in the public that people are not being chosen on an ideological basis, but rather on the basis of their work, their career, their merit. Um, then, you know, when we look at how the courts administer themselves, that we really focus on random assignment of cases and that they are random. So that the more that the judge, that the public believes that they cannot judge shop, so you cannot uh, bring a case in a particular district and think that you are only going to get that particular judge and it's only going to go to that circuit. You know, you can't stop people from filing things in a circuit. But if there is truly random selection, people can't judge shop. And that, I think, will also go towards creating this sense that um, there isn't necessarily this partisan ideological nature of I'm going to choose this judge because I know I'm going to get this result. Um, I think that that too is really important. And, you know, just a plug for diversity is I know we've talked about precedents and I don't want anybody to think that we are um, chained to precedent because the law does change over time and should because society evolves and changes over time. 
And I think one of the best examples of that is um, when you look at the evolution of um, sexual harassment cases in um, employment law, that when the bench was mostly male or all male, that it was very difficult to prove sexual harassment cases because the people that were deciding those cases would look at the facts and say, you know, this is just part of the job, right? Seeing photographs of naked women um, plastered all over the inside of a locker and having comments as you walk through the break room, you know, that's, you should expect that. That's not harassment. That doesn't, that's not, shouldn't bother you. That doesn't impact your ability to do your job. Then, the more that you had women coming on the bench, those women were able to reflect on their own experiences and say, you know what? Actually, that does impact how I do my job. And that does make it difficult every day to go to work. And the law changed, as it should. So um, I don't want anybody to think that, you know, just because something has been decided one way, that it should always be that way. Um, that is not judicial independence either, right? I think judicial independence comes down to seeing how society has evolved, how norms have changed, and being able to um, look and see should the law also then change to go along with um, how society views certain conduct or behavior or actions. Which really goes back to something on the one of the earlier panelists mentioned about, you know, um, uh, one of the things that lifetime tenure promotes is the ability to develop the expertise and the deep thought and understanding in the law to be able to make um, decisions about it. And that's an important part of judicial independence as well. So we've talked about sort of the decisional independence. Um, we've talked a bit about the logic of the law. Um, and there's a third aspect that I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, which is about the branch as a whole. Um, and we heard on the earlier panels uh, about the, 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 build up, the growth of the judiciary since the founding, but then of course the development and the buildup of kind of administrative apparatus um, for the courts and for the branch as a whole, largely in the 20th century. And I wonder if you could both speak to your um, sense of your role within the branch and your sense of the relationship between the larger uh, administrative apparatus, the branch as a whole, and your uh, particular role as a judge. Um, I'll start with you, Judge Cole. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think we're very fortunate, actually, um, to have uh, the expansion that has occurred over the last 40 or 50 uh, years or so. I mean, we have the administrative office of the courts, which I think employs somewhere around you know, 800,000 people with various uh, degrees of expertise as to 
all kinds of issues that impact uh, the courts, and that would include ethics. So to the extent a judge has a question about ethics, that judge can call the administrative office and talk uh, with someone who has experience. Um, we have uh, the FJC, the Federal Judicial Center, and uh, uh, we uh, have opportunities like this one uh, to learn more about uh, subject matters and uh, issues that impact how we, you know, do, do our job. So um, uh, I think that uh, the expansion of the, the administrative apparatus overall has been a good thing. We get more information, look at the law clerk hiring process. Now we have this Oscar, which allows us to have exposure to a wide range of law clerks, gives us a chance uh, to uh, review, you know, on a, a database essentially that uh, will uh, uh, set forth the application materials for those candidates who are interested in clerking. And for me, uh, for example, I'm looking for a diversity of law clerks in, in every respect, including clerks who will come into my chambers and uh, give me perspectives that I might not otherwise hear. Um, I always ask for at least one clerk uh, to take the position that's contrary, perhaps, to the position that I, that I have, um, and, um, and to, to argue that uh, zealously. Uh, so anyway, I think the administrative structure uh, is a good one. Um, again, as I mentioned before, with that, uh, there is the opportunity uh, for any member of the public who has a complaint uh, about uh, a judge uh, or a judge's conduct uh, or a judge's ability to serve, that person can file a complaint. And there is a very robust review process throughout the, uh, the, the circuit, the circuit council, uh, the ju judicial uh, conference perhaps, uh, to review whether that judge uh, is... Um, suitable to continue serving. And of course, you know, uh, there's always the process of impeachment if, if grounds exist. Jealous? Yeah, I think that the expansion of um, the administrative aspect of the judiciary has really helped in terms of judicial independence in that we are then able to show the other branches of government that we can manage ourselves. And um, I think it's also helpful for judges to participate in the judicial conferences, um, different committees, and show that uh, we're able to kind of manage how the courts run themselves, how we, how also the different agencies that work with the courts, um, how those are run. And it brings up different things for judges to think about. So, um, for instance, I serve on the Defender Services Committee. And through that work, hear about different constitutional issues that bubble up across the country that we then, as a committee, need to deal with in terms of, you know, do defendants, are they being represented um, at all critical stages of the proceedings? 
you want the answer to be yes, <laughs> right? But um, there may be different courts across the country that have different practices or different cultures or different understanding of how they do things. Um, but as a judge myself, when I'm looking at my own cases, it helps bring some of those issues to the forefront so that I make sure that I am being careful um, with all of these issues. So I think that it um, also fosters this sense of ownership in the judiciary when we are working on committee work or with the FJC um, or working with the AO or other agencies that this is our branch and we take care of it and we have pride in it and we understand how fragile judicial independence is and what we need to do to take care of it and make sure that it goes forward. Um, as people have said before, you know, that this is a family and sometimes, you know, a family of in-laws, that yes, we can uh, criticize each other within the branch. <laughs> you know, I can talk about my sister and say horrible things <laughs> about my sister, but God forbid anybody else say anything horrible about my sister. So um, it does create that sense of ownership in the judiciary that this is our career. This is our calling. This is our branch and we need to take care of it. Um, so I think that that also strengthens this uh, concept of judicial independence is when you are vested and you care about it and you want to maintain it. So um, a lot of our conversation to this point has already touched on, on a number of sort of current issues uh, or, or touched on sort of um, our, our, our social and political climate at the moment in which you're operating. And I just want to ask you about that more directly um, is just sort of what do you think, what, what are the big issues um, what's on your mind about judicial independence in this current social and political climate? Um, how do you see the significant issues? And I'll start with you, Judge Cole. Uh, we live in difficult times. <laughs> uh, I think it's a, a, it's a tough time um, in some respects to, to be uh, a member of the bench. But I think it's tough for the public, too. Um, and that's why I think uh, as Judge Ellis said, focusing on civics and the education of the public generally is, is just very important. I mean, we've got a 24-7 news cycle, um, and I encourage, uh, you know, public discourse, discourse political dis discourse, uh, public discussion, and disagreement with what uh, uh, this branch does, what I do as a judge. That's part of our constitutional framework. Uh, and so I am not at all opposed to that. Uh, but you look at just the various um, threats that exist to independence of our, our branch, and uh, we, we just have to find ways, <coughs> excuse me, to um, uh, 
uh, address those in a productive uh, way. You know, all, all, all we can do is decide cases. You know, we, we find facts, uh, we interpret the law, we write opinions. And then that's really the final word from us until a, a reviewing court reviews it. At the same time, you know, with social media, uh, with all the cable shows, uh, the talk shows and pundits who in 30-second sound bites uh, are uh, giving their thoughts on uh, the correctness of our decisions, uh, the wisdom of our decisions, uh, the thoroughness of our decisions. We are powerless in many respects ourselves to address those. So uh, it's important for us to be transparent. Uh, it's important uh, for us to urge parties uh, and people generally to come to our court proceedings. A lot of the circuits now are streaming uh, oral argument, and you can stream right off of YouTube. And I know in our circuit, and I think most of the, uh, the circuits. Um, add to that, you know, just the, the, the increasing number of threats that judges are dealing with, and of course we've had several very unfortunate uh, incidents where uh, their threats have been uh, taken to actual uh, uh, devastating uh, action. Uh, all these threaten, you know, our independence as, as, as a branch. But um, uh, hopefully there are groups that can help uh, explain what we do, bar associations, um, educational arms like the FJC, um, and, and people who understand the, you know, what we do as judges so the public can come to understand better uh, what we're doing you know, behind those uh, walls of our chambers or in the, in the, in the courtrooms. It can, I, I would imagine it could seem quite mysterious to a member of the public, especially for a court of appeals, uh, where you've got a very brief oral argument uh, and the public doesn't know how you know, these three judges are coming to a decision and what goes in the into the process. Uh, as others have said, most decisions are unanimous, like over 90%. And most discussions uh, among three judges are very productive. I will say, as someone said earlier, I think the Ambank court is a bigger challenge because you're, you're dealing with a, a larger uh, number of people. Um, but again, uh, I think as long as we uh, are very uh, clear and, and uh, I guess just proactive in informing the public that self-governance uh, is a priority uh, in our uh, uh, system of, uh, and in our branch, and that we are, you know, we are doing our best to address uh, you know, the issues that would be of concern to any member of the public or to us, um, that's, that's a good thing. Judge Ellis? I think what I worry most about is uh, creep. So I don't know that we're going to lose judicial independence in one fell swoop. I don't think it's going to be something that happens from one day to the next and it's over. Um, I think it's more that it would erode. And without vigilance, that that is what would happen. That there would be enough um, issues that bubble to the surface where all of a sudden there's an inspector general 
that is appointed by Congress or um, you know, various legislation is passed by Congress that then kind of eats away um, at judicial independence. So I just worry about uh, judges not being vigilant enough and looking at the threats to judicial independence that come across the board. Um, and, you know, when we talk about security and safety, for example, that, uh, that maybe we get too far on the side of security and safety and then courts are no longer accessible the way that they need to be. Um, so, you know, I think that it is always a balance and we have to just always be thinking about these different things, not in a vacuum, but how they all fit together. But what we can do is um, we have a voice that voices in our opinions. And the more that we can write clearly and directly that the public can read our opinions and understand how we got to the decision that we did and follow the line of our reasoning um, and it is something that's clear and doesn't come across as partisan, that we are measured in our writing, that we don't take pot shots um, at the parties or we don't take pot shots at the judge or um, judges on a panel, that the more that we can be measured in our writing and clear in our writing and transparent in our writing, that that too will help protect. And that's what we can do, that's, that's our voice. It makes me think of uh, the point Allie Larson made this morning about uh, these norms didn't emerge in one fell swoop, right? They were built up over time, and if they're gonna be lost, won't all be in one fell swoop, but an erosion, an erosion of them. Um, well, we've covered a lot of ground in a few short hours this morning, moving from Madison and the framers all the way through the 20th century up to uh, our, our conversation with judges today. Um, very different contexts from Madison's time to talking about the, the judicial branch as it is today. And you and your many colleagues, uh, an entire institutional apparatus around you. What is clear, though, is uh, over all that time, people have thought deeply about judicial independence and what it means, just as you all are and as our speakers have today. Um, and certainly that will continue. I want to thank you both so much for your generosity with your time this morning. Thank all of our panelists and the audience for being with us today. Um, it's been really enriching, and thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by John Guerra, Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and me, Tanea Tauber. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Visit us online for a full lineup of exciting programs and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org. As always, we'll publish those programs on the podcast, so stay tuned here as well, or watch the videos. They're available in our media library at constitutioncenter.org slash media library. 
Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.